Hello, everyone. Today is October 19th, 2020, and welcome back to the Change Healthcare Policy Connection podcast. I'm Deanne Kasim, and with me today is Arian Malik, and today we have a special guest joining us. Paul Wilder is the Executive Director of the Commonwealth Health Alliance, which is a not-for-profit trade association of healthcare and technology organizations working together to create universal access to health data nationwide. Commonwealth and its members are committed to the belief that provider access to health data must be built into information technologies at a reasonable cost for use by a broad range of healthcare providers and the populations and the people they serve. Caveat, Change Healthcare is the service provider for the Commonwealth Health Alliance. Paul, welcome to the Policy Connection. I'm glad you're here. Great, thank you very much. Tell us a little bit, a little bit about your journey to get to where you are today at Commonwealth and what your primary responsibilities are there. I appreciate the opportunity to, to chat and uh, no caveats required. Change is a fantastic uh, service partner, we'll say, and uh, partner in our journey as we try and advance healthcare interoperability across the country. So um, I've been in health information technology for most of my adult working career. So that's uh, aging myself, but it's now over two decades, um, with about half of it in information exchange. And I started in information interoperability from a general clinical perspective uh, after having done imaging stuff, radiology, cardiology, and, and the like. When I exited healthcare for a very brief period of my, my career into industrial stuff, and I experienced something as a healthcare consumer uh, not even as a patient, because it wasn't me. It was actually me as the administrator of my daughter's care, where my, my first daughter got born and um, she had some issues uh, just post her third day of life with jaundice re reappearing. And so we saw our a pediatrician for their first her first visit. And um, he said, you got to go back to the hospital. And unfortunately, the hospital that we had her born in was in New York City. We live in, in, in we live in New Jersey across the river. So we went to our nearest hospital to where our house is, which was eight blocks away. And in doing that, uh, they asked us a lot of questions about data, you know, data about our three-day-old, three and none of that data was available. And I was like, look, the data is, is two miles away, the crow's flight distance. I can practically see the hospital she was born in, but the records for her episodes and all the stuff she got tested for as a slightly early arriving child and everything, uh, might have been, might as well have been locked up in the Sahara Desert. Right? They were impossible. I called, had everybody call, and I, they said, well, the, the records are between floors. And when this is atrocious, like the fact that in, you know, this is 10 years ago now, that I can't figure out her blood type and whether they did a meningitis test or whatever, and she had to now have a spinal tap, about 400 different lab tests done again, and the bill and everything went along with that, plus a five-day hospital stay. And I said, I got to get back into healthcare because there's still some big problems to solve. And that led me straight into interoperability and saying, yes, you know, there's a, you know, EHRs are great and we're, we're doing better at operating them. They are great tools. Uh, but if we don't have good interchange between healthcare entities, we're going to continue to have problems managing population health, individual health, all the things that go into the quadruple aim. So here I am at Commonwealth, been here about a year. Uh, journey got me from being at a, a statewide and regional HIE in New York City called the New York Health Collaborative, uh, back to Philips doing HIE uh, with a focus on image exchange then, uh, partially from my background before. And now I'm here and you know, try, trying to 
do good work and make sure that we advance the cause with a great set of members who are aligned in the mission of better healthcare through through data and interoperability. Wow, that's quite the story. And I know that many of our listeners, myself, we've all encountered similar situations where we desperately needed access to our data and we just couldn't get it. Um, so thank you for sharing that for us with us. I wanted to ask you about Commonwealth's relationship with another large nationwide network, which is Care Quality and their members. You know, where are we in terms of that relationship today and what is on the future roadmap? Yeah, so our relationship with them is 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 fantastic. I mean, we are we're an implementer of care quality. Um, I feel that if uh, the, the the leader executive director of care quality was on and you called it a network, he'd make me correct you. So it is a framework, right? It's a, a little different from Commonwealth and the way it operates in that um, in Commonwealth, we have change as our service provider and that the technology you guys are helping us with is technology that enables us to find records about a patient amongst registered uh, provider networks that are attached to the system, right? There's a record locator in the center. In the care quality world, there is no coordinated central infrastructure or network. There's no record locator. It is a set of policies, rules, and implementation guides that make exchange from a point-to-point -point perspective efficient and within the same policy set uh, across the entire, well, I almost said network, across the entire framework. And um, as a participant and implementer there, you know, we, we follow the rules that are necessary to do exchange and care quality. And what that's led to is a dramatic increase in the amount of usage within our network, both inside our network and out. Uh, by not being connected to outside things beyond our network, which is a strong network covering about a third of the you know, the patients and providers of the country, um, you know, there's still big gaps. And by connected to care quality, uh, a lot of those gaps got filled. And once we did connect, we saw a change in you know, a couple hundred thousand documents a week to a couple million uh, to now about 22 million documents exchanged through our network every week. Uh, so a run rate of about a billion a year holding steady there. So, you know, we saw a more than 20-fold difference from when we first, before we were attaching care quality to where we are now. And now we are the largest exchanger across that network uh, nationally, you know, period. Now, that's not just, we're not just one entity, of course, we are multiple members. So we're a, a nesting doll of sorts of a network of a, of a framework with a bunch of networks behind it. Uh, but, you know, we see significant benefit from being there. And I think the framework itself sees a great benefit for us being there too, because uh, everything is bilateral and we, we benefit together as a true network effect. Great. Well, thank you for explaining that. And that certainly is a lot of records and a lot of data moving through, which is a good thing. Yeah, it, it is. And it's the, what care quality does is make that exchange, uh, we'll say safe or secure. By having the rule set of how one endpoint talks to another, we have the proper certificates and security, but also the right assertions uh, and legal framework to say that I trust you, you trust me. Um, Commonwealth is also a trust network, a trust framework. It just happens to have a, a network infrastructure on top of it. Um, and you, you can go either way. They both, they both have benefits. It's a little philosophical in that if you're a care quality specific member, um, you will do the searching within the framework of where to target on your own. You'll decide that 
Well, since this person lives in San Francisco, I will search all the known care quality endpoints within their home or their office or within their caregivers and providers and hope that I get results or I'll get directed uh, guidance from the patient of where to search versus Commonwealth philosophically is you'll ask about Paul Wilder and the system will say, here's all the places I know where Paul Wilder had care. It's really just a, it's a, a pre-work versus post-work uh, philosophy. And you know, philosophically, our members are aligned with the system should help them find data. And that's what we do for them. And then the, uh, we help them also find data within the care quality framework as well. Great, thank you for that. So, uh, hey, Paul, this is Arian. Um, I would like to dive first into this question of a record locator. Um, and what a record locator is good for and what kinds of things you can do without one and what kinds of things you can do with one. So I wonder if you can explain the difference between uh, waking up and as a provider uh, talking to a patient uh, operating without a record locator and, and you know I think you've also described some of these some of these actual networks implement a sort of jerry-rigged uh, record locator where they broadcast search within a geography so they might in the Bay Area hit all the large providers uh, of care in the Bay Area and what that looks like when you when you do that query with a record locator so I wonder if you could just give us a a day in the life and maybe um, give a view as to what what the difference in the experience from the provider perspective, what's the difference in the experience from the patient perspective? Yeah, that's a that's a, a great angle. So there's there's two th really three different things to think about the record locator. Um, and there are multiple flavors of this. A record locator uh, at, at its core is a system that is aware of the locations of the records for individual patients. So I, Paul Wilder, have records at Mount Sinai and New York University and you know, Dr. Bob's primary care practice, right? There's all these places where my data is. And the record locator is designed to be to help me find those things. And they can be built by th three primary methods, but there are others as well and variants in between. One is by knowing things about other data sources that know where my data is. You could use claims data, you could use pharmacy, lab data, you know, other data sources and use secondary things to say, based on my prescription history, here are the places I likely sought care because they wrote scripts for me, right? That's one approach. Another approach is the providers themselves or the, the vendors between them uh, have a feed to an RLS that gives patient demographics and says, I'm Dr. Bob's primary care practice and I have a patient named Paul Wilder at this address and this phone number, why don't you remember that in case you need to remember that later? And that's a kind of a proactive matching that, has ha that happens through the exchange of normal clinical data and the, the demographics that are associated with that, the usage of healthcare throughout the country. Well, the third way- go, Hold on, before you go farther, RLS means record locator service, is that correct? Yes. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. We get stuck in our acronyms and let's forget to, to unabbreviate them. And the last is, is kind of by observed exchange, right? So 
We also do from Commonwealth changes broker that is inside Commonwealth. When it's in care quality, it does that geo searching we describe where it says, you live in the Bay Area, let's look at other Bay Area providers and see if they have records about you. What the observed record locator does is if it gets a hit, right? It finds a, a record for Paul Wilder at X practice, it remembers it, right? And likewise, it might remember things where it couldn't find. And it could also remember records where people came in and looked inside a Commonwealth site and said, oh, look, this practice, Dr. Bob's practice in San Francisco, just pulled a record from Kansas City General. There must be a link there, it remembers that too. So there's multiple ways to build this, but in, the, the reality is that it can be built many different ways, but the RLS's job on query, when I am looking for data, is to tell me these are places where this person has clinical records, would you like me to go get them for you? And the yep. difference, you, you asked about the difference between like the observed difference from a clinical perspective probably, is I, the provider, have to do one search. I click one button and the machine goes out and it says, here's why I know stuff. What a record locator is not, what it doesn't do, it can, but it usually, but at the base level, it's not remembering the clinical data itself. It's just remembering where the records are, what we would call federated. The data remains at Dr. Bob's, at Kansas City General, at Massachusetts General. It's all in the individual provider records. It's only upon some provider coming and looking for data for Paul Wilder and saying, yes, I want those documents, that it retrieves it and passes it on to the original querier. We don't have a warehouse or an analytics engine in the middle. You can add one, but it's not a necessary component to make an RLS uh, function properly. Right. So from a privacy perspective, we've minimized this so that it only knows uh, that Paul has some records someplace but it doesn't know the actual data. It doesn't know uh, any of that. And you can only use the record locator if you're author, if you're using it for an authorized purpose, but the record locator itself doesn't know anything about the actual data that's associated with Paul. That's right. And, and, and that, that finding function is almost easier to appreciate if you think about what happens if you put a really good RLS on top of all the data across the country and allow patient access, right? So imagine you've just been diagnosed with, with cancer and a provider says, I need all your data, right? You're now, you're currently under stress. The likelihood of you remembering where all the locations are that have your data is not incredibly high. You're in a stress mode. And two, you don't necessarily know what's relevant. Right. Is my primary care record most important or my ENT or my pulmonologist? You don't know where to start. So as a patient, imagine there's someone that isn't connected to Conwell. They say, go get all your stuff. If I could click a button and it goes out and grabs all my data, packages it and allows me to use that both for my care or to hand to someone else, that's a lot more efficient than me making 10 phone calls to the three hospitals four specialists and three primary care providers I've had over the last 20 years to go try and find my data. You apply that same principle to a clinical provider and they see the same benefit. It just, it, it usually feels more real when you think about what happens when it happened to your mother or your grandmother or your friend. Everybody has experienced or has someone who experienced the problem of go get me your clinical data or help me go find it for you. 
and finds out that that's a two to three week process. Much better with two to three seconds. And all of my worst healthcare experiences are inevitably at you know two a.m. Uh, under stress. So you compound uh, that problem. I'd like to switch. So Paul, you've done a really nice job of laying out where the nation is for uh, record retrieval for clinical care. So all of this retrieval that's being done is being done for patient care to inform the care continuum, which is fantastic. Uh, I think people would not believe you even after you explain what's happening in across these networks uh, today because they're they're living in a world that's five years ago where this stuff wasn't getting done. So I think it's worth sitting down and maybe you know celebrating a little bit that we've gotten to this to this pretty momentous place. But then we turn around and we ask, what else is uh, the right thing to do with these networks that now have access to data nationwide? And earlier this year in uh, April, uh, with, for a report that was released in May, you and I were talking about um, with the Duke Margolis Center uh, that had convened a, a a focus group on interoperability uh, and COVID-19, we were talking about using the national networks um, exposed through, uh, through, through networks like Commonwealth as ways of addressing the case investigation process for a disease like COVID-19. So I'm gonna pause and give a little bit of a rewind to you know how this works in practice uh, i go get a i have some symptoms or worry that i have some symptoms i go get a covid test and um, the output of that covid test is a lab report that may have my demographic and my contact information or it may not it may just have my name my billing information and the result of my COVID test. Um, that test, if it is positive, is forwarded on to a public health authority. Uh, so in my area, it's the Alameda County Public Health uh, Agency. And their job is to conduct case investigations and you know the, the famous contact tracing. And if they do their job really well and really quickly, then they can get in front of spread. They can counsel me to stay home. They can figure out who I've been in contact with and figure out where I might have gotten it. And so if I got it from the grocery store, for example, uh, they can get in front of you know, a potential super spreading event. So these agencies are in a critical role in terms of controlling the spread of COVID-19, controlling the the deaths and uh, you know long-term health consequences of COVID-19 and also helping get the economy back to work again. And uh, so we were we were placed sort of in the mind of a public health worker who's just got a public health you know lab report with a positive test that says Paul Wilder on it. And you know maybe an insurance and a piece of insurance information is trying to figure out uh, how to start this case investigation. So I wonder if you can um, give us a view of how that might get done uh, using the networks that are available, some of the challenges to work through that you've had to work through in the past few months, 
And then, you know, maybe we can take it from there in terms of uh, of what the consequences are of having now these vast national networks um, that have the ability to uh, go get access to data. Yeah, that's a, obviously a very real-time uh, current situation that we're still not done with, right? And um, I was very pleased to be on that work group, and I thought we did some great stuff, but it actually also pointed out some work we still need to finish. <laughs> and the um, one of the things you mentioned in that background was the the gaps in data, right? We we found that you know a lot of the particularly like the pop up laboratory tests. You know, my my daughter had a COVID test at one of them because she had some uh, some surgery to do, and I got those results immediately, real time. So that was great. But often at the that point of care, that point of testing, the data they collect on demographics and like isn't complete and right so these records don't get back and so we've found that there are some things we can do and some things we can't um, one of them is if you're contact tracing and trying to look at clinical records to help triage a little bit to the patient what to do let's rewind you've rewind a little bit on the same period to new york city under a crunch um, then it wasn't necessarily about contact tracing and opening the economy it was I don't have enough beds, uh, who do I say to go to the hospital or not, right? And in that case, access to my prior clinical data could have helped a clinician or even pseudo clinician, someone at public health department, when I call and told I'm positive, whether I should stay home and self-quarantine because I don't have a history of problems, or we've looked at your records and you seem to, seem to be asthmatic and pre-diabetic, we really do recommend you come in right now, right? And you know, and go to a hospital. So there is some of that point of care support you can do by having access to the data. Um, but one thing that's interesting that we saw is inside Commonwealth, we saw a lot of good queries, even with incomplete data. And part of the reason why is the record locator service that we have, um, not only does it match patients and find things, it also allows people to search for patients, right? To say, all I know is Paul Wilder and his birth date. Type that in and get a list of Paul Wilders with that birth date. And from there, I can talk to the patient and say, can you give me an address or two that you lived at? Oh, I lived at Main Street and this zip code. Like, oh, there's only one of those in this database. This must be you. And be able to kind of match that without perfection of the data, right? And then we can go clean up stuff. So the record locator service helps us do that. Uh, in care quality, unfortunately, this is a little bit more challenging. Um, by going point to point, site A is going to site B and saying, I have a Paul Wilder with these demographics. Do you have one of those too? If there isn't a perfect match, that site B is unlikely to respond because they don't quite know if they are talking about the same patient, right? You have to match up nearly perfectly on demographics. So what we found is, yes, the networks can be used for this. Um, yes, some RLSs are better at it than others. Uh, and we're proud to say one of that's one of the features we have is this kind of probabilistic ability to find things. But we also do have to improve the way we do data collection at the point of testing and care to make this really amplify going forward. And so, you know, there are many things that happen in healthcare, whether telehealth and different ways of providing care that, you know, you want to stick the landing. Um, but we we definitely want to make sure that as we go into 2021 and 22, 
that we have better processes to make sure that the demographic data of a patient so that we can do this matching and utilize this these infrastructures and frameworks and networks works as best as they can uh, with uh, the security and privacy necessary uh, to exchange data uh, across the country. I just want to underscore one thing that you just said around rapid testing. So I think we've done now a really nice job of making rapid testing more available. If we make rapid testing available and we have a lot of uh, potential positive uh, COVID diagnoses because we've got better test availability, but we're not collecting the data up front initially, then the engine that's behind that for doing contact tracing just has nowhere to go. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't know that, right? And I've 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 been in work groups and they've been talking about lab results and I said and they're like, well, we got to fix this. We have a near-term thing of COVID and whatever. I said, yeah, but there's a problem up front. And so there's really two kinds of rapid tests, right? There's the rapid to the point you you get the results so fast that you don't leave the place until you drive out with your answer. And I was fortunate to have that. It actually didn't matter whether the results got back to my real provider or to the public health department. If myself or my daughter were positive, we knew before we drove away, right? That's, I know to start self-quarantining or not. The bigger problem is the rapid, but still like a day, right? And what happens there is you leave, your results are done by a laboratory uh, somewhere, and they might be associated with a, a practice and a provider. When the public health department gets the result that someone named Paul Wilder has tested positive, if the demographics collected up front do not have good contact information, right? Just what's their phone number, what's their email address? It's difficult to find me fast enough to get me off the street. Say, hey, Paul, wow, you're, you're positive. You need to self-quarantine and we'll check back in with you in 10 days or whatever it is. If that gap, if it takes days to clean up the record, go back to the primary care provider, be matched up to a medical record number, which matches up to better demographics, to get a phone number to the, to the public health department, we've lost a significant amount of time that I could be shedding virus into the, into, into the open uh, community, which does not help us with containing a virus like this. So the speed of turnaround and the accuracy of the data does matter significantly when one day versus three days can do a lot of damage. I'd like to turn this question as well to other things that we might be able to do with these large national networks that help us uh, create a better healthcare system. So as a personal example, you know, my son has a set of uh, disabilities secondary to a genetic disorder. And one of the things that we did when he turned 18 is apply for a Social Security Administration disability determination. And a lot of people don't know that um, in this country, we've got a disability system. Um, it's both set up for people who are temporarily disabled and people like my son who are permanently disabled. And as a consequence of getting a disability determination, you both get um, additional benefits but you're automatically eligible for your state Medicaid uh, benefits, which is which is you know a useful system, um, particularly for those who have the misfortune of being permanently disabled. At the same time, the process that you go through to get the data to validate your disability determination is, uh, and I kid you not, it is a 50-page form 
that asks you literally every place where you've received major care. And if you have a complex uh, health condition, so in my in the short 18 uh, years of, of my son's existence, uh, he, he's been seen so many places for so many things that just filling out that form was a hardship. And then the SSA office lost it and we had to do it all over again. And then you sort of imagine uh, people that are funded through tax care, taxpayer dollars, uh, getting all these forms, calling up all the health systems. You imagine all the health systems responding to the forms, making physical copies of records, somebody sitting there and collating all that data together. So we've got a fair amount of administrative expense that is both net taxpayer expense and administrative overhead for the US healthcare system. And it's a terrible experience for uh, those of us who have the misfortune of being disabled or having, um, having uh, loved ones who are disabled. So I wonder if you can plot a picture in the future where um, that manual paper-based system is much more automated. Yeah, that's, that's, um, that's a very important point. Uh, there's, you often don't think about the administrative necessary uses of clinical data uh, throughout your daily life. And, and part of it's because it's not your daily life. It's an episodic thing. And then once you get it fixed, you kind of forget about it. And there are a wealth of things. And, and you mentioned disability. Um, life insurance coverage is a, is a popular example as well, where you know the, the more healthy I look, the healthier I look in my data, the better my premium is going to be, right? That that's, makes sense as life insurance is covering to pay someone else, your beneficiary, in the event that uh, you, you die early compared to whatever you're supposed to die. And if the healthier you are, the less likely it is to happen. So they, they charge you less, which is great. Uh, but getting that data, I mean, I, I did that recently and it wasn't 50 pages, but it was about 20. And I filled it out three different times for three different types of material, all the same data and all extractable from clinical records. Um, so that was a burden for myself. Um, some of it was a burden to, and often is, especially in disability, where you have to get for social security, uh, very complete data. It's a burden for the practices and it's a burden for the Social Security Administration. Like everybody is is being penalized. You have to go find it. Someone has to give it and they have to collect it and take it from paper records and type it into a computer. And the reality is, you know, things are a heck of a lot faster if you can hit a button and get it digitally in the first place. Uh, the challenge that, that the networks have right now is Commonwealth, uh, care quality, e-health exchange, all of them were set up initially um, to support the treatment use case. So in our world, we talk about use cases a lot. It's patient access or requests for their data. It's data for treatment. It's data for a payer to adjudicate a claim, all these different use cases. Um, and the rules, I mentioned that framework, the, the key thing it does is create that trust framework of who can do what and what assertions and security and uh, legal framework you have to be in place wasn't set up for that exchange. So in Commonwealth, we're, we're embarking right now on adding that. Uh, we are weeks away from adding the ability for uh, insurers and payers in healthcare, right? So those are people that pay for clinical care, uh, the insurers for, for healthcare itself. 
um, to be able to pull records for purposes of claims adjudication and doing quality measurement of uh, providers and their insurance practice in general. And then right on the heels after that, we plan on adding uh, coverage use cases, which would be disability, life insurance, and the like. The reality is that there, these, these administrative burdens are, are not small. And uh, you can go down the cost side or whatever. Uh, you know, speed also matters, right? Sometimes you want that claim satisfied faster. It's a tremendous burden on yourself. And I'm sure everybody listening to this has at some point gotten a bill, uh, like, you know, whether it be from a provider or from your insurance company in form of an EOB explanation of benefits that wasn't right. And it takes a while to explain how something went wrong. And that's not me, or that wasn't my exam, or I didn't have that done. What is this $1,500 or $15,000 or $150,000, depending on the problem? And uh, getting access to that data faster uh, makes everybody's life easier. And the the, uh, the analogy I look at is actually going back more at banking. I know a lot of people hate the banking analogies with, with healthcare, but the one I use is not about the ATM and the data and how the framework is similar from a security perspective, but just the, the administrative speed at which we can do things now because we have a digital means to do them. And many listeners won't necessarily remember going back 25 years ago and standing online at the bank on a, on a common feeder line of 100 people to go and try and withdraw $100 from your account. Now you're mad if you can't find an ATM within three blocks if you're in New York City, maybe three miles if you're in the suburbs or in rural, because you think you have access to that money all the time and you have access to your your bank from your home with your on the web. And now when you go to the bank, you go there for specialty stuff. You go there, I need a mortgage, or I want to get an auto loan, or I want to open a new account. The things that require a person to help you uh, to make sure things are done correctly, but the basic stuff can be done faster. And I think that that's where we're trying to get to. Um, and we're adding inside our framework, at least the framework to do that inside Commonwealth to allow those transactions to work securely and with the proper security and privacy protections necessary under HIPAA and other regulations so that your data is only going where you expect it to go. And that's the trick is making sure you do that second part. Easy is good, but easy and secure is a little harder, but we have to do it. So I'd like to summarize what you just said, because uh, uh, I can't help but reminisce a little bit when I when I hear all of this, um, you know, this this network got started uh, I want to even go back to the Markle Foundation and the Connecting for Health work that that set up the notion of a record locator service. Um, and then a number of us were working in 2012, 2013 to stand up this crazy idea of a national record locator service. And uh, it's taken some time. Uh, it's now 2020, but we have broad national access to clinical data. And Paul, I think one of the things you're saying is, um, we're here, we have large amounts of data being transacted to inform clinical care. And a lot of people, as I said, don't know that, and we should celebrate that. I think what you're also saying is in the realm of public health, in the realm of uh, disability determination, life insurance dis uh, determination, you know, claim challenge, th these kinds of things, these, these areas that have uh, both a high burden on us as patients, on clinicians, and a high administrative cost burden, there are solutions here, but those solutions uh, take a little more work and a little more time because we need to make sure the data gets collected right uh, up front. We need to make sure that the data that we're transacting across the network 
is fit for purpose for those use cases. We need to make sure that we have the policy rules for each of those new use cases uh, thought through so that we can't just use the blanket policy that we use for, um, for uh, patient access and for treatment uh, for things like public health or for uh, insurance and disability determination. So we need additional work uh, to, to make the data that's flowing more useful for these additional use cases, but there's a ton of benefit for that in terms of reducing administrative cost. What are other things you'd love a policymaker listening to this podcast uh, to be thinking about as they're thinking about law, legislation, uh, or regulation at the, at the national or the state level? Yeah, right now, um, I think we're doing a fair amount of good work at advancing the ball um, without excessive regulation when it comes to what you do in terms of treatment exchange uh, and moving into coverage, disability, and the like. I think it's actually important that you know we as the market uh, do a, a good job, even a better job than what we expect as a community to get ahead of things so that the regulation isn't quite required, right? It's that it works better on its own. And we know, as you know, a lot of people listening to this too will know that from the inside baseball perspective, right? We still had to put information blocking rules out there and make it very clear that, you know, this is that patients have the rights to their data and providers uh, need easier access as well as payers. Like we needed that as, as a reminder, but quite frankly, by the time those came out, we were actually pretty far along fixing that on its own. Um, it's not saying it's unnecessary, but it's gonna, kick everybody over. We have 100 million people registered in our network. We don't have, we have another 200 million or so we can add. So we need a little more work, right? But the, the ball is rolling very fast downhill, which is great. I do think though, there are some edge cases that are still very important that we don't think of every day. And uh, one, one example I had very recently was advanced directives and uh, you know how you want to plan your future care at the availability and liquidity of those things. Um, it does feel like we could use some regulation or assistance there um, to nudge people to understand what they are, make them available, and make them actionable. Uh, you know, there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of end of life care that's done uh, that patients didn't really want to have done, <laughs> uh, but it was difficult to communicate what that final wish really was. Uh, partially because the systems weren't there to say, this is the final directive. And in healthcare with treatment, it's okay if one piece of data conflicts with another because you have a clinician there reading it, right? Saying, oh, they were pre-diabetic, now they're diabetic, so it's a good thing I had both of those pieces of data because one would conflict with the other if I didn't understand a clinician that, that the trajectory goes by the date range and where you are. Uh, but with advanced directives and um, managing all the things that can happen that you're not aware of, it's really important to make sure you have the last one. And what happens is by not knowing if the thing you have in front of you is the last one, you find it to be non-actionable. So uh, some regulation that helps certify at a national scale, this is me, this is what I said, and it is the last and final, and a way to update that. Uh, almost looking at like the, the the organ donor, right? A lot of people are organ donors because it's a very simple option to do when you get your driver's license. And it would seem that maybe 
regulation or support for maybe even the payer to collect that data and store it in a repository in the sky that is permanent and accessible, that you could say, hey, since you're getting experience in healthcare right now and you're signing up for insurance, maybe you wanna check this box and we'll send you a link of how you can go through advanced directives and explain what you want your care to be. And we'll put it in a certified location that every provider has access to and has a duty to consult. Right, I think that's a that's a good place that you know regulation could help to get out of a logjam that we see in terms of you know a daughter or a granddaughter, grandson not understanding that you know my wishes are really my wishes when I get to an unfortunate uh, moment in my life, life or end of life. So I think that's one for sure. But in terms of the rest of the stuff, I think we're actually do, doing good as an industry. And the only thing I would say that I would add is we are looking for a little bit extra guidance on what to do with patient access. Uh, patient access is their data, the apps that they use, how are they certified and ensured that they're really meeting the security and privacy principles we would expect as healthcare? Because the reality is providers are responsible for your data. They're the ones that get in trouble if they lose it, it's, uh, it's disclosed incorrectly, et cetera. So they have a, a duty to lock it up. We want them to free it to give to patients, but that line right now of who's responsible when an accident happens that the wrong data is given to the wrong person, it's not quite clear who's in trouble yet. And I think we could use some work there as well. Thank you for that. Yeah, in the past, we've also heard from uh, policymakers who have pointed out that we need to fund public health uh, to be able to connect up to uh, large national networks like Commonwealth, um, that, uh, that there are other actors where payment policy or just providing um, uh, support uh, to for the necessary work to do the connections could be useful. What do we think about that? Oh, so yeah, I apologize for not even mentioning that. I was actually on a call the other day that I was talking about public health and um, reporting capabilities as well as querying capabilities. And the reality is public health is just woefully underfunded for this exercise, one. And two, there is a lack of federal coordination on it, right? It, don't get me wrong. Um, I believe that states have rights and that you know there are state issues, there are federal issues, but uh, healthcare is generally considered a state thing, not a federal thing. We know of Medicare and CMS and Human Health and Services Department of and the federal level, but the reality is a lot of the work is done at, at the local. Um, and it's actually doing a bit of a disservice to the local entities that we don't have kind of a, a some sort of unified playbook. Maybe you don't force them, but it would be good to have better guidance on ways to influence how to do the integration and what documents to exchange through policy or funding, right? You could you know, think of the insurance exchanges. The federal side could say, look, we will fund the public health department for X, Y, Z, you know, this kind of syndromic surveillance or this kind of contact tracing if you use these standards for the next X number of years. And then after those X number of years, if you don't use those standards, you lose the funding for it. There's, there's a way to kind of be positive and getting harmony with a standard so that New York isn't battling this on their own and New Jersey and Connecticut and Pennsylvania and California. Um, it would be cheaper overall. There's a common standard, especially as we have healthcare entities that cross state lines. You know, IDNs, you know, delivery networks are big. They cross state lines, they have policies in Florida that are different than their Texas organizations. And it makes it difficult for vendors to adhere to what to do, which adds waste. It adds waste when 
uh, large EHR vendors to small EHR vendors have to have 50 different flavors of things of how they help their providers report and interact with public health. Likewise, it adds costs and waste on the public health side that they all are deciding what to do individually. Sometimes because they're very right that you know it should be done the way they're doing it because they're advancing it beyond what the federal conversation is. But sometimes they don't know why they're also wrong <laughs> uh, and creating more cost and, and, and problems for themselves down the road. Thank you very much. And Deanna, I want to turn it back over to you. Great. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Arian. Very timely discussion on important topics, um, some of which are actually being proposed and discussed for a fourth COVID rescue package back in the Congress. So thank you for that. For our listeners, don't forget to check the show notes for links to resources and contact information related to today's show. And stay tuned to the Change Healthcare podcast for more shows covering the policy, healthcare, and health IT topics that you care about. I'm Deanne Kassim. Don't forget to vote, and I hope you have a great rest of your day and stay well. You've been listening to the Change Healthcare podcast. For more information on this and other healthcare IT topics, please visit changehealthcare.com. Don't forget to check the show notes for useful links to related resources and our contact information. Thanks for listening and have a great day.